welcome to a special episode of the Podcast Against Disease. I am your host, uh, Dr. Cody Weston, and I'm here with the chair of Johns Hopkins Psychiatry, Dr. James Potash. Welcome, Dr. Potash. Good to be with you, Dr. Weston. So, Dr. Potash, I'm hoping to speak with you today a lot about your role in steering the Department of Psychiatry here at Johns Hopkins. And one thing that I thought was really unique is that you've been a part of the Baltimore community essentially your whole life. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I was born in this hospital and grew up here in Baltimore. Wow. And you trained here? I did. I went off to the Peace Corps in West Africa. When I came back, I got a master's degree in public health here at Hopkins. And then I went to medical school here and then did my psychiatry residency here as well. Excellent. And then after that, you went to Iowa for a time. I did. I uh, stayed. I joined the faculty at Hopkins and wound up being on the faculty for 12, 13 years or so, and then went off to to University of Iowa to be the chair of psychiatry there. Hmm. So that's in Iowa City, and it's a it's a department that that really had a wonderful history. It was one of the leading departments in the country in the nineteen. 70s and 80s. And before me, Bob Robinson, who'd been on the Hopkins faculty, had gone out and become chair there for 20 years. So I took over from him. Hmm. Awesome. So what led to you taking an interest in getting into an administrative role and taking these chair positions on? Because of course, after that, you returned to us here at Hopkins and are now chair of our program. Well, I had always and continue to, to love taking care of patients. I had also spent a lot of time developing a research career focused on the genetic basis of psychiatric illness, particularly depression Mm -hmm. and bipolar disorder. And I'd gotten involved in program building here at Hopkins. That is, I developed a a research program in mood disorders that encompassed a, a variety of different aspects, genetics, as well as things like brain stimulation program, ECT and transcranial magnetic stimulation and had been involved in women's mood disorders. As I was putting these different pieces together, I began to realize how much I, I liked connecting the dots, hmm. building a, a multifaceted research program and having that be connected to a clinical program and having education be, be connected to all of those things. So I began to realize that being a department chair gave me the opportunity to, to build programs on a larger scale and have a bigger influence. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As someone who's MD-PhD trained, a lot of what I was taught is how these things all influence each other. I mean, having strong clinical programs uh, obviously informs your ability to do good research and translate back and forth. And the education, of course, is important to the maintenance of strong faculty and the development of future faculty. So I can definitely see the appeal. With respect to program building, what have you been able to shape both at Iowa when you were working there and uh, since you've returned to Hopkins in terms of developing programs in a positive direction that you've felt would be useful? Well, so at the, at the University of Iowa, the thing that really stands out was the creation of the Iowa Neuroscience Institute. We had some strong neuroscientists in the psychiatry department. We had some strong neuroscientists in the neurology department, and we also had some strong neuroscientists in the department of neurosurgery. And there was a feeling that we had the potential to create something 
that would be much stronger than we had in these sort of uh, somewhat siloed areas in different departments it, it, that if we brought everybody together we'd create could create something really special and so so we spent a couple of years five years or so uh, trying to bring people together and we wound up creating a new institute and bringing in a really fantastic neuroscientist from the University of Pennsylvania Ted Abel hmm. and eventually 70 million dollars or so worth of resources was was funneled into the creation of, of this entity and and our feeling was that with really strong neuroscience, we were going to be able to create opportunities for better understanding psychiatric illness mm -hmm. in ways that hopefully would ultimately lead to our ability to create better treatments. Yeah. And that's been, unfortunately, one of the big challenges of psychiatry is that the constructs we look at are so complex that, I mean, I think it stands to reason that our breakthroughs are going to be farther down the line than neurology and neurosurgery where the structures are often more discreet. I think that's right and, and that's certainly one of the things that's come out of genetics research in psychiatry. On the one hand, we've made a lot of progress in genetics and psychiatry in the last 10 years. We've come to understand the genetic basis of, of major psychiatric illnesses, schizophrenia, autism, bipolar disorder, depression, far better than we did before. That's the good news. The bad news is that as you suggest, we, what we have not found is we have not found that a single gene is responsible for any of these illnesses or a single variation, genetic variation, is responsible for any of these illnesses. Of course, it would be much simpler if that were the case because then we know exactly what to target to as we look for better treatments. Instead, what we find is that the, the genetic susceptibility to these illnesses is spread out across dozens, scores, maybe even hundreds of different genes, which, which makes targeting any one thing a whole lot harder. Yeah, that's been a really fascinating thing. I'm still very much on the outside of the genetic aspects, but I know the idea of incorporating epigenetic testing and these kinds of things has been a frontier that we're beginning to explore as well. Do you see much promise in that in the near future? Right. So epigenetics refers to the idea that there are chemical modifications of genes that ultimately control to what extent they get turned on or turned off in any given cell. Of course, the genetic code itself is essentially fixed, mm -hmm. and it doesn't change over the course of the lifetime with rare exceptions. Certainly cancer is, a, is, is an exception. But from a psychiatric standpoint, the genetic code is fixed. The epigenetic marks can vary over the course of a lifetime. And epigenetics is fascinating because it does represent uh, a biological nexus where genetic susceptibility and environmental influence meet mm -hmm. because environmental signals can change epigenetic marks. So the biggest environmental signal that we pay a lot of attention to in psychiatry is stress, yeah. stressors. We know well that early life stressors and maybe to a somewhat slightly lesser degree, later life stressors have an impact on the development of psychiatric illness. You know, for example, we know that people who experience m multiple major life stressors are about three times more likely to develop depression than people who don't. we know that those stressors are in some way, shape, or form changing our biology, presumably changing our biology yeah. in, our, in the brain. And epigenetics might be one way in which the biology gets changed ultimately.
Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see if we're able to translate those pieces of knowledge into therapeutics in the eventual future. But it has been a puzzle of ever-increasing complexity, it seems. The more we learn, the more we know we don't know. So getting back to Baltimore a little bit, what do you see as the role of Johns Hopkins and Johns Hopkins psychiatry in the Baltimore community? Johns Hopkins certainly has, has been an anchor institution in Baltimore for over 100 years, since all the way back to its creation in 1873, I think it was. Hopkins Psychiatry was created in 1913, so it's been over 100 years that we've been a part of Baltimore. And Hopkins was put in this place in Baltimore because it was one of the poorest parts of the city. Mm-hmm. And Johns Hopkins, the philanthropist who created this institution, very much wanted to make a difference for the poor. We continue to play a very, very important role in the city in a variety of ways, and certainly one of the most important ways is by providing what we refer to as community mental health services that Mm. are meant for the underserved and the disadvantaged in the city. We have a community mental health program at Johns Hopkins Hospital. We have an even larger community mental health program at Johns Hopkins Bayview Hospital, which is on the eastern edge of the city. Through our community health programs, we not only provide mental health care in these clinics, but we reach out beyond the clinics. So we have mobile treatment programs that go out into into neighborhoods and into people's homes and provide care directly in their homes. We also have an extensive school-based program that goes out into the Baltimore City public school system and provides mental health care in clinics that are in the schools. We have a new leader of that program who's in our child psychiatry division, a guy named Hal Kronzberg, who's Hmm. doing a terrific job in that role. We also have several people in child psychiatry who are especially interested in the role of stress and trauma in the mental health or mental illness of children. Carol Vidal and Rihanna Platt are involved in those efforts. Dr. Platt in particular is especially interested in, in working with the Latino community who in this era of stress around immigration policy has yeah. been responding to, to those issues. Oh, that's great. What are your hopes for the future of Johns Hopkins psychiatry in Baltimore? Do you see any things on the horizon that we haven't implemented yet that you're particularly excited about? One thing that we're working on is trying to provide a wider array of services in the community. So for example, we're talking about trying to create a crisis stabilization center. This would give us more options than for people who are, who are in crisis than simply having them come to our emergency room. Emergency rooms are very crowded places and places where people don't always get service as rapidly or as efficiently as as we might like. A crisis stabilization unit would give us another option to serve more people. Another thing that we'd like to do is create more partnerships with other organizations around the city. As of recently, we entered into a partnership with the University of Maryland Child Psychiatry Program where us and and Maryland work together to respond to pediatricians who have questions about psychiatric mental health issues in, oh. in the kids they care for. More partnerships like that, I think, would be helpful. Excellent. 
So it sounds like more connecting and building the sorts of things that you were saying that you were most interested in before. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as many of our listeners may not know, child psychiatry is by every measure I've seen either the most or one of the most underserved specialties in the country. So any efforts to raise awareness in other providers has got to be really useful. I agree with you. So I think we've already touched on this a little bit, but since you've taken on the role of chair here at Hopkins, what are the actions you've been most proud of? You know, I think that the thing that I'm most excited about in terms of new initiatives is our effort to provide more opportunities within our residency for academic growth and development. Our residents are certainly the the lifeblood of the program. Our residents bring in tremendous new energy and talent every year. And, And our residents often go on to be leading clinicians here and around the country and they grow they go on to be leaders in other aspects of the field and so we want to take every opportunity to give residents the chance to grow and develop as leaders so we've created a new pathway program in the residency where residents can develop academically as researchers or as public mental health experts or as child psychiatry experts or as clinician educators that involves increased and more focused mentoring for the residents from leaders in each of those areas. And it also involves dedicated time to begin to have experiences that'll help them grow in those paths. Yeah, I know that's been one of the more exciting developments I've seen from my perspective as a resident. I know it didn't exist when I applied and showing up on the scene, I'm getting to see it all come together. And it's already actually benefited me personally. I'm getting support from Dr. Swartz in terms of how to better make this podcast uh, reach out and help people. So a little bit meta there. (laughs) So how do you think psychiatry is going to change in the next 20 years? You know, one of the things I think that's going to be a real change is the integration of technology into psychiatric care. Mm. Of course, when we think about technology and medicine, we think about things like radiology, where it's more obvious how you could use artificial intelligence, say, to read images. But there's a lot of opportunity in psychiatry as well for technological integration. For example, we could use cell phones to provide care to people. We are, in fact, right now in the department engaging in a program where we send text messages to people with schizophrenia to help prevent relapse, Hmm. encouraging them to take their medications, for example, sending positive and encouraging messages, encouraging them to abstain from using illicit drug or drinking. Text messaging in the service of better care is, is one way to think about implementing technology. Another is to take advantage of all the information we can get from social media. Mm-hmm. So we have a program called Social Media Enhanced Depression Care. And there, the focus is on monitoring how patients are feeling and, and what they're thinking by being on the lookout for messages in social media that might, for example, suggest a patient is becoming suicidal. And then we would try to get them in to be seen much more quickly than we would otherwise have done. There's also the use of telepsychiatry mm-hmm. to reach patients who may not be able to get in to be seen very easily. And so the elderly are particularly good candidates for programs like that, mm-hmm. people who are not very mobile or, in, or might be in nursing homes. 
And then another use of technology is taking advantage of the electronic medical record, which has enormous amounts of information on people, not always all that easily accessible, but we can develop ways to, to make it more accessible and to do things like, for example, get people enrolled in research studies or use algorithms to figure out who's at risk for particular complications of interventions we might be thinking about. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those developments are going to accelerate and we're trying to stay ahead of that curve. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of opportunities for so-called force multiplication. I found in my burgeoning practice already that just being able to be in constant contact with my patients by text message. I haven't had any cases knock on wood where the patients have reached out in excess, but it's been a lot easier to be there in the moments that they need help, even if that's not when I'm going to see them for 30 minutes or an hour in, in clinic. What do you think other programs can learn from the way we do psychiatry here at Johns Hopkins? I've, I take tremendous pride in the quality of the clinical care that we deliver. And I think that, that the quality that we're able to deliver hinges on a couple of things that we've been doing in this department for a long, long time. The person who founded the department, Adolf Meyer, was the, he was the most famous psychiatrist in America for the first half of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. He developed an approach to assessing patients that involved learning as much as you possibly could about the patient the so-called Phipps history, named after the first benefactor of the department, Henry Phipps, it involves spending a whole lot of time getting to understand a patient's life. Superimposed on that is an approach developed by Philip Slavny, our residency director, and Paul McHugh, our former department chair, that is described in a book called The Perspectives of Psychiatry, written first in 1982. And there... McHugh and Slavny described four different ways of thinking about psychiatric patients, which they call the disease perspective, the life story perspective, the behavioral perspective, and the dimensional perspective. The disease perspective is the, the way doctors think about patients. What mm -hmm. disease do they have? The other three perspectives all come out of psychological traditions. The life story perspective in particular refers to the tradition where you, you really try to understand the person as a unique individual with a unique set of life experiences. Mm -hmm. And in trying to understand all four perspectives, you really have to think very, very comprehensively about what you've learned about a patient. And it's not simply assign a diagnosis and prescribe a medicine, but think about an entire plan to not only treat a disease biologically, but, but treat the whole person. And I've found that to be really helpful. I've discussed with the other residents what we've found helpful and less helpful about going through the program. And one thing that always comes up is that we can't really disagree with the use of the perspectives. I mean, it's at very least, it puts a floor on our ability to assess patients. Like, because we're using this sort of checklist and making sure we've thought about so many different aspects, you have a baseline level of understanding that you can always go above that, but I've never walked out of an initial interview feeling like I knew too little to get started, and I think that's been helpful. What do you think is the biggest unmet mental health need, particularly in Baltimore? 
that we should be addressing or that we're trying to address but haven't been able to reach to the extent that, that you'd like us to be reaching? Well, certainly the opioid crisis is enormously important issue in Baltimore as it is in many places around the country. And that's superimposed on what was already a very, very large substance abuse problem. Yeah. It represents an, an enormous challenge for us in the city. There, we have a large substance abuse program at Hopkins Hospital and, an, and another large one at Hopkins Bayview Hospital. But the demand for our services outstrips our ability to provide services. We, there are enormous numbers of people who, who need help. And there's not as many substance abuse services or not enough as much funding for substance abuse services as we would ideally like. Hmm. This is definitely something that, that hopefully we'll be able to improve in the future. Because I've seen, especially with fentanyl, working in our intensive treatment unit and our motivated behavior unit, it's a whole different ballgame because not only are we treating substance use, but we're having to treat it in a way that's harder to predict and is more lethal than it's ever been. What do you think are the biggest barriers between the care we're providing now and the care we'd like to be providing? Do we just need more people? Do we need more financial resources? Of course, it's got to be some combination. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it is there. It is a combination of things. Uh, I think that I think stigma does continue to be a problem. It's certainly much, it's less of a problem in America than it used to be, but certainly there are still lots of people who feel very stigmatized by mental illness, and there are a lot of people who hesitate to reach out to get the care they need mm -hmm. because of fear of what other people will think. I think that good psychiatric care takes time. I think the, the so-called med check approach to yeah. psychiatry is not a very good one. That's the approach where a psychiatrist is essentially a prescriber mm -hmm. and spends 15 minutes with a patient to decide how to change medications. I think the perspectives of psychiatry approach that I was talking about earlier, again, emphasizes the psychiatrist's role as the person who, who really looks comprehensively at a patient's needs. To do the assessment and to address those needs comprehensively takes time. So we need psychiatric care that allows psychiatrists the time to do that, that the job they need to do. Yeah. And that's actually one thing I've been really happy about with uh, my time here is that there are very few constraints placed on the time we take to do the job correctly. And I think even among faculty, you guys tend to be able to do a more comprehensive deep dive if necessary and... I mean, maybe you see more pressure on your end, but certainly there's never been pressure coming down on me that I'm taking too much time with a, either an inpatient or an outpatient. And I've always felt like I could evaluate them to the full extent that I needed to. And that's been refreshing in an era where I remember in medical school, I got some heat for taking too, too much time in family practice visits if I'm spending 20 minutes trying to be effective rather than 15 minutes trying to just blow through everything. Yeah, and I think I think patients always feel good about a, an experience with a doctor and certainly with a psychiatrist when they feel like they're not being rushed and when they feel like they're being fully heard. And conversely, the experience of being a psychiatrist is so much more satisfying when you feel like you can truly connect with the patient, respond to the patient, and again, not feel 
like you're rushing through it. Yeah. I mean, it's not been uncommon for me to hear that patients say that they've never spent this much time with a quote unquote real doctor because they end up going up through so many levels. Maybe they've spoken with a medical student this long or something, but that's certainly been a rewarding experience. With respect to people in communities, what do you think people outside of psychiatry and healthcare in particular can do to support the mental health of their friends and family? Well, certainly this issue of stigma is one of the big, big, big issues, which is to say that you can support the mental health of people by recognizing that psychiatric problems are medical illnesses and not any different than cancer or heart disease or asthma or, or any other medical illness. For example, people sometimes are hesitant to ask, oh, how are you doing? I, I understand you've been depressed. They're hesitant to ask in the way that they w- would certainly ask if somebody had just had a knee replacement. Mm. You know, if someone had a knee replacement, they'd ask about it. They'd bring them meals to help them out. And and I think people are more wary about doing that when it comes to psychiatric illness. But again, they, they should not treat it any differently. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this ties back into research quite a bit in that now that we can point to, yeah. well, here's some genetic markers, here's some inflammatory markers, here's some actual biochemical changes going on. I think that makes the story a little bit more palatable to people who might have been skeptical about psychiatric illness being quote unquote real illness. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. I think think biological discovery, discovery of what is unfolding in the brain in the course of psychiatric illness and discovery of the things that set the illnesses in motion, on the one hand, is important because it's going to lead us towards better treatments. But as you point out, it also is important because it helps make the illnesses more real to people. When there's something that's tangibly broken, I think it helps people understand that this isn't just moral weakness or the product of somebody's imagination. That we're, we're talking about something that's broken in the brain. When it comes to schizophrenia, we know that if you do an MRI of somebody's brain, you will see real differences yeah. in their brain. You'll see some shrinkage of the brain and conversely, larger empty spaces in the brain. When it comes to Genetics, we now know that there are 44 different places in in people's DNA that are different Hmm. in people with depression and and 30-some places that we know about that are different in bipolar disorder. So so we are beginning to, to get that kind of concrete evidence. This is a little bit of a change of subject, but one of the things I've noticed about Hopkins is that we are also very involved internationally, and as a hospital, we've got very broad reach. I'm wondering what your perspective is on how that has affected our position in psychiatry. Are we able to get our message out better? Are we able to get better input from other cultures, these kinds of things? What's been your experience from that front? Well, so on on the one hand, certainly we've long had an international reputation, and that's part of the reason why we get people who come here to join our residency training program and who join our faculty who come from all over the world. Mm -hmm. We have faculty members who are from Australia and from Nigeria and from 
Peru and from China. So we, we've got faculty from many, many places. We also have programs in different places around the world. One of our faculty members who's from India, Gita Jayram, has a program in South, which is essentially a community mental health program in a, in a small city hmm. in South India that she's played a key role in. We have strong partnerships with the Department of Mental Health in the School of Public Health. Hmm. And there is a global mental health center there run by a woman named Judy Bass. And, she, and her team have gone to a variety of countries around the world and implemented psychotherapy programs, hmm. typically in, in areas that have, been, that have had war or disruption in some way. We've also got someone in our child psychiatry division, Dr. Jim Harris, who's working on mental health policy in uh, Myanmar, Burma. Interesting. Did you have anything else that you'd like our listening audience to know? Any closing thoughts? Yeah, I'll tell you that it's an exciting time in psychiatry at the moment because there have been some really new treatments that have come down the pike very recently for the first time in a long time most of the medications that we use in psychiatry were developed in the 1950s and 60s Mm. the things that have come since then have mostly been medications that are so-called me too drugs which is to say they they tend to work by similar mechanisms as the existing drugs yeah most of the advances we had made were not in efficacy but safety for example the ssris are not necessarily any better than the antidepressants that came before. They were just easier for people to, to tolerate, mm-hmm. which is not bad, but it mm-hmm. doesn't help the very severely ill. That's right. In March of this year, 2019, the Food and Drug Administration approved two new drugs in, in depression. One of them, esketamine, is a drug that's been approved for treatment-resistant depression, and it seems to work by an entirely different mechanism than any other mm-hmm. antidepressant, and it works more quickly than any existing antidepressant. So that's an exciting development. We're going to implement clinics to deliver esketamine here. Mm-hmm. You need a special clinic because a person has to be observed for several hours after they take the medicine. Mm-hmm. And then they also approved brexanolone for the treatment of postpartum depression for mm-hmm. depression in women who've recently given birth that also seems to work by an entirely different mechanism than any other existing antidepressant and then another new direction which at the moment is only experimental this is not something that's available widely yet and we don't know if it will be but it's an exciting new direction and that is the use of psychedelic medication to treat psychiatric illness yeah. a member of our faculty Roland Griffiths is the world's leader in the development of this research direction. And we're on the verge of creating the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research Mm. under Dr. Griffith's direction, thanks to some very substantial philanthropic interest in the area. Wow, that's really exciting. I know it's been super fascinating to watch that unfold. Remember back in the... I guess around 2008, 2009, there were only a few papers out in the the whole field, really. And Dr. Griffiths and his colleagues were responsible for almost all of them. And now it sounds like there are at least four or five programs that I'm aware of that are really taking off. It does seem like the evidence is too hard to ignore. 
of course, they've had to take sort of conservative selection of patients, and we don't know yet how well it's going to generalize, but certainly there's got to be some hope there if the results continue to bear out. And of course, the advantage there, just like esketamine, is that the effects seem to be a bit faster than what we see with our current standard of care, with the possible exception of ECT. Uh, Dr. Potash, thank you very much for being with us. This has been really exciting, and I'm hoping that our listeners will find what you had to say really helpful. I, I appreciate the opportunity, Dr. Weston. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>